0: thank you for joining me on another episode, video of Resisting the Winds. I am your host, Colin Brooks. This is the final argument in my examination of the Lutheran view of the Lord's Supper. This is not the final video. I actually have two more videos I'm going to make. One is going to be kind of a more lighthearted one, funny one, that I would encourage you to check out. And then the the other one I'm going to do is I'm going to do a a summary video where I just really briefly present all the arguments I've made in this series. I look back and didn't think I made this as clean or as easy to remember as I intended to. So I'm going to make one kind of conclusion video and my hopes for that video is that might be a good one if you have someone interested in this issue. You can show them that conclusion video, and then if they have further questions, they can go and look at one of the longer videos I made on it on the individual subjects. So that's my hope is to do two more videos in this series, uh, kind of a lighthearted, ecumenical fun one, and then to also do a condensed summary of the argument. So be on the lookout for those, but this is really the final argument. And I have kind of saved the best for last, if you will. If, if you were to put me in a corner and force me to give one reason for why I reject what some people refer to as the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. Although in my introductory video, I mentioned how the Reformed liked that phrase for themselves, Uh, but however we describe it, that Christ's body is substantially present in the supper. Why do I reject that? Both specifically here, the Lutheran position, but this would apply to the Roman Catholic position as well. And what I think is the number one argument, and it was important to Beza, it came up in Beza's book regularly. As a quick rabbit trail, also remember that these aren't so much my thoughts, is I I was trying to summarize the arguments that Beza laid out in his book. And this was very important to Beza, this was very important to the Reformers, this continues to be important today. The number one reason why I would reject the real presence of Christ, the substantial bodily presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper, is because that, those positions, here specifically the Lutheran position, forces us to divinize the body of Christ. It forces us to make the human nature of Christ function as if it is the divine nature of Christ. It divinizes, it makes divine the human nature of Christ. The way I'm gonna put it for the video Our final argument is this. The Lutheran position is Eutychian. The Lutheran position is Eutychian. The Lutheran position forces you into the heresy of Eutychianism. Some refer to this as the heresy of monophysitism. Some would argue there's a slight difference between the two. We're not going to split the hairs and get into the semantics today. Um, Monophysitism, Eutychianism. I believe that the Lutheran position incidentally commits a Christological heresy. And... All the Reformed from Zwingli and Calvin and Beza onward have always believed this. The Lutheran position is Eutychian. So in order to, let's hear from Beza, and then we're going to need to do some Christology to remind us of terms, and then I'll get into the argument. Here's one way that Beza said it. Beza said, we know that Christ's natures have been united in such a way that the properties unique to each remain intact. And so those qualities which belong only to the divine nature no more correspond to the human nature than vice versa. So Beza is talking about how Christ, and we're going to do the Christology in just a second, that Christ has two natures, the divine nature and the human nature. And that the human nature is just that, it's human, it's not divine, so we can't attribute the divine things of Christ to the human nature and vice versa we can't can, we can't attribute the human things to the divine nature let me give like a classic example of how this looks if you're new to this conversation if you are orthodox you believe that Jesus is god and if you're orthodox you believe that god is omnipresent and so the question is where is jesus right if he's god then he's omnipresent and if he's omnipresent that means he's everywhere but i don't i don't see him in my office anywhere so i've just proved jesus is not god right Well, no, because we understand in what we call the hypostatic union, when Christ took on flesh, he took on a human nature. And so the divine and human nature came together. And we understand that we have to, we can't separate them into two persons. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we have to make the properties, as Beza puts it, the properties of each distinct. So yes, Christ's divine nature is omnipresent. Christ is present with all of us right now in his divine nature, but his human nature is not omnipresent. And that's why his body is not in the room right now. His human nature is not omnipresent. Why? Because humans can't be omnipresent, and if his human body was omnipresent, then he didn't take on a real human body. He did not really become one of us, right? So Christ had to actually become a real human, so he took on a real human nature, and Beza's argument is we cannot take the properties of the divine nature and impute them to the human nature, but what we are going to argue is that that is what the Lutheran position does. It divinizes the body of Christ. It it makes the human nature of Christ a divine nature. Now, so let's do a little bit of Christology. What is Eutychianism? Again, some refer to this as monophysitism, although some would define him a little differently. But what, what is this heresy? This is the heresy that Christ only has one nature. Christ is one person, and this one person has one nature. Now... Throughout the history this one single nature has been described in different ways all of them heretical one is that he purely had a divine nature and no human nature at all or that there was a human nature that was consumed by the divine nature or that there was like a blending of the human and divine nature and so this view would almost see Christ as like a demigod like half human half god a blending if you will of human and divine in the the christian church the orthodox position not i don't mean greek orthodox russian i don't mean you know eastern orthodoxy i just mean the the true orthodoxy the true christian position has always recognized two distinct but unseparated natures in one person so christ is only one person there's only one christ right there's not two Christs. there's not three Christs. there's not a bunch of different Jesuses that we talk to there's only one christ There's only one person, and then that one single person has two distinct natures. You can't separate them into two different people. So they're unseparated, but they are distinct. So Eutychianism says that there's only one nature, a kind of divine human blend. It blends, it confuses the nature of Christ the natures of Christ rather than keeps them distinct. Now I'm not saying Lutherans do that explicitly. Like obviously Lutherans are orthodox in what they affirm. They affirm that Christ is one person with two natures. They don't affirm the blending. But what we are going to try to show today is that if you hold the position that Lutherans do on the Lord's Supper, it forces you to take the human nature of Christ and divinize it or blend it with the divine nature. So they don't confess Eutychianism by any stretch of the imagination. But I do think that this one particular doctrine is a Eutychian doctrine. It's the Eutychianism or monophysitism is the only way this doctrine really could make sense. Now, what's interesting before I try to validate that, before I try to justify that, is if you were to read in Beza, Beza accuses Westfall, the Lutheran, of Eutychianism. But a heresy is returned back. And from the Lutheran position, and from the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox position as well, the the Reformed, we are calling them Eutychians or Monophysites, and they are calling us Nestorians. They are are accusing us of, of perpetuating Nestorianism. So what is Nestorianism? This was another heresy condemned right at the same time named after man Nestorius, the first one named after a man Eutychius, this one Nestorius, although there is great debate as to whether Nestorius actually taught what we call Nestorianism, but that's for another day. What is Nestorianism? It's the ditch on the other side of the road, right? So you've got the orthodox position running right down the middle. You can slide off into one view that says there's one nature in one person, or you can slide off into the other ditch that says there's, yes, there's two natures, but it's because there's two people. And in this view, you essentially have two Christs, and that's very, very bad. There's only one Christ. We only have one Lord, one Jesus. Middle position, the true position, is that there's one Jesus, one person, two natures, human and divine. One error is to say, yeah, there's one person, but only one nature. No, that's wrong. The other error is to say, yes, there are two natures, but because there's two people, that's also wrong. We want the middle. So Nestorianism taught that Christ is two persons and then therefore each of those correspond to a nature. So that's why they affirm Christ has two natures. Nestorians would say one person can't have two natures. You have to have one person, one nature. So there are two persons in Christ. Again, Orthodox Christians recognize this is making one too many Christs, (laughs) right? There's only one Jesus. And so we can't do that. So Jesus is one person with two natures. He's not two people with each nature coming together. So what this might look like, I don't mean to be crass, but we don't wanna think of Jesus as like a schizophrenic where there's the human Jesus and then there's the God Jesus and they can like talk and the human Jesus is like, you know what, I'll die on the cross if you God Jesus will do the miracles and and the God Jesus is like, oh, thanks human Jesus, I appreciate it, right? We, there's not two Jesuses, a human Jesus, a divine Jesus coming together to make this like super Jesus, right? Right. That's, that's not the view. There's only one Jesus. The one Jesus who existed in eternity with God and yet was God. He did not take on another Jesus, but he took on a human nature. So now the one Jesus has two natures. I hope that was all, I hope it was not too redundant, um, but I hope it also was clear and not confusing. So let's talk about where this was condemned and the orthodox position came to light in what we call the Creed of Chalcedon, or the Chalcedonian Creed. There was a council uh, that met in 451, so this is the 5th century, middle of the 5th century, and they produced this famous creed that you're looking at on the screen right now. Let's read the whole thing, but this highlighted portion is what is most relevant to today's discussion. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead, and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and body, coessential with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, and all things like unto us, without sin begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of each nature's being by no means taken away by the union but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one in the same Son, and only begotten God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning Him, and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has taught us, and the Creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us quite a lot there, and I would love to break down every single sentence, but let's hone in on this underlined portion I have. Now, why have I done this? Because this is where I truly believe I'm going to establish not only that the Lutheran position is Eutychian, but I'm going to defend that the Reformed position is not Nestorian. We are not Nestorians. We are being accused of Nestorianism, but we are the ones who are merely following the creed here. So the Creed regularly throughout clearly distinguishes the natures of Christ, right? This is true according to his Godhead, this is true according to his manhood, right? Jesus' Jesus's Godhead was not born of the Virgin Mary. but He was born of the Virgin Mary according to his manhood. So the Creed regularly throughout, is very clear to distinguish this is true of Jesus's divine nature, this is true of Jesus's human nature. What you'll find in polemics and apologetics is that when reformed theologians are very careful to distinguish the natures, we are accused of Nestorianism. The Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox and the Lutherans, Westfall did it to Beza all the time, throughout the accusation, look, at they're, they're making these big distinctions as if there's two Christs. But no, we are the ones who are much more careful to properly distinguish the natures, just like the Creed of Chalcedon does. The Chalcedonian Creed all throughout is very, very explicit and clear to distinguish the natures. So the fact that we in the Reformed world are willing to distinguish the natures does not make us Nestorian. It is not Nestorian to say this is true of his manhood, this is not true of his Godhood, of his Godhead, of his divine nature, right? If we say that's true of the human nature, that's not true of the divine nature, we are not being Nestorians, we are merely following the pattern of the creed, which does that consistently. But I want to focus in, I want to hone in on that bold and underlined portion, because this is where I truly believe the Lutherans cannot consistently, I know that they do affirm this creed, but I don't think their view of the Lord's Supper can be matched, can be paired with this creed consistently, specifically here. So there is one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten. So again, we're not Nestorians, there's only one Jesus, one Lord, there's only one Christ, one only begotten Son, there's not two, there's only one. But this one person is to be acknowledged in two natures without confusion, without confusion. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person. So what can't you do to be orthodox in your Christology? You cannot confuse the natures of Christ. Yes, there's only one Christ, but there are two natures which concur in this one person, and those two natures cannot be blended, they cannot be confused. And how, according to the creed, does one confuse the natures? One confuses the natures by taking properties that belong to one and applying it to the other. There are things that are true of Christ's divine nature that are not true or applicable to his human nature. And if you start crossing those, then you have blended the natures. You have confused the natures and you're no longer orthodox. I do not believe the Reformed or Nestorian. I believe we are making the proper distinctions between the natures which concur in one person. But i do believe that the lutheran position confuses the natures and it confuses the natures by taking properties that belong to the divine nature and applying them to the human nature so let's finally get into it long introduction but it really was needed how does the lutheran position divinize the body of christ or how does it commit eutychianism by confusing the natures that is exactly what beza accuses it of he says If the properties of the divine nature in actual fact belong to the human nature or vice versa there would be no union but a confusion no union but confusion that's what he accuses the lutheran position of they do not have a union of natures they have a confusion of natures and the creed told us to keep these natures unified but do not confuse them do not blend them and so let's look at the ways that i think and that beza agrees probably better say it the other way around, I agree with Beza, that the Lutheran position confuses the natures of Christ, which is the Eutychian heresy. First thing we need to keep in mind is that Christ's body is not ubiquitous. Christ's body is not ubiquitous. They, The Lutheran position div- divinizes the body of Christ. It confuses the natures by making Christ's physical body ubiquitous. What does that mean? What does it mean to be ubiquitous? It means basically to be everywhere. It's, it's similar to saying omnipresent that his body can be in multiple places at one time. His body can be everywhere. And we know that this is not true of human nature. This is not true of human bodies, right? I am one person and I am also a human, and that's my only nature. And what are some things definitional to my human nature? I can only be in one place at one time. The human nature is limited in that capacity. We have boundaries, our spirits, and our bodies especially, our bodies have temporal boundaries. They have dimension. So Christ's body, his physical body, cannot be in two places at one time. But that is exactly what the Lutheran position requires. Because what is the Lutheran position again? It's that in every single Lutheran church, when it's time to take the Lord, partake of the Lord's Supper, and the elements are consecrated, Christ's joins the bread and the wine. And so if there is a Lutheran church here in New Mexico doing the Lord's Supper on a Sunday morning, and there's another Lutheran church in Colorado doing the Lord's Supper at the same time, how can Christ's physical body be in both of those churches? We know he can be present spiritually with them because his divine nature is omnipresent. So we have no problem saying Christ is spiritually present but that's not the Lutheran position. The Lutheran position is he is bodily present, that he, his body is actually literally there. So how many Lutheran churches do the Lord's Supper on a Sunday around the world? How many different places does the body of Christ have to be at the same time? They've taken something that's true of his divine nature, that he is omnipresent, and they've made it true of his human nature. His human nature is not omnipresent. His human nature doesn't have that ability they've blended, they've confused his natures. Bezos says, it needs to be demonstrated that one in the same body comprised of real dimensions can be in all places at once. For we assert that it is not possible even for angelic nature to be in all places at once, let alone for a human nature. Such is consistent only with divine essence. So Christ has a true body. He didn't have a fake body. He had a a real body like us, And so the dimensions, the abilities, are the same. I cannot be in a thousand places at once. Jesus' body cannot be in a thousand places at once. The only way to do that would be to replicate the body, but now here's the question we have. How is that not replicating Christ? Now who's the Nestorian, right? So you could ask the question, like if let's say I had the powers of Christ, here's my hand, could I duplicate it? Could I make a second hand? And now my hand can be in two places at one time yes but that would be a second hand that wouldn't be my body that would be a new body we would have two calling hands now not one calling hand right kind of a weird example just came to me but you get the point christ cannot just replicate his body he might have the power to do that but it wouldn't be christ right now we have we don't have one christ in thousands of lutheran churches we have thousands of christs in thousands of lutheran churches So now, you're you're either, to hold the position, you've either got to be Eutychian or Nestorian, but you can't be orthodox. And that begs the question, when we think of the Lutheran position, we do have to ask that question, how many Christs are there? Consistently, how many Christs are there? Because not only do we have all of these Lutheran churches around the world doing the Lord's Supper at the same time, so we've got all of these Christs in all of these churches. I know they don't say it that way, but that is logically what it leads to. We have thousands of Christs, and yet they're claiming, well, this is all one Christ. The Lutheran church in Paris, the Lutheran church in Germany, the Lutheran church in America, they those, those are all one Christ. We've got three bodies, all in union with three different breads, yet it's all one Christ. How, how does that make sense? That's three Christs. And notice the problem gets even worse. You take the bread, which is supposed to be the full humanity, divinity, body, and blood of Christ. Christ's entire body, blood, soul, divinity, humanity is present there. And you put it in your mouth and you chew it and you bite it. What have you just done? You've replicated Christ. There's now two Christs in your mouth because you broke it in half. And you chew it again you've now made three Christs and then four Christs. That's what this position leads to. You put Christ in your mouth and you chew it and you've now replicated Christ, you've created. Hundreds of Christs. We're like replicating Christs here. We're just creating Christs everywhere when we drop crumbs on the floor, when we chew the bread. And if, if Dr. Cooper, we listened to a video from Dr. Cooper on the cannibalism thing. You remember when he talked about, you know, isn't it cannibalism to eat Christ, to chew his body? Aren't we destroying him? Aren't we killing him? Don't we digest him? And he basically just says, listen, the scriptures don't talk about that. So we're not gonna answer that. That's just speculation. We don't know the scriptures don't talk about that. So I'm guessing I could be wrong, I'm not trying to put words in his mouth. My guess is someone like Dr. Cooper would take the same approach here. Are you replicating Christ in your mouth? That's that's speculation. The scriptures don't address that. We don't need to think about that. But I think these are important questions and I think that the answers to these lead to logical absurdities which reductio ad absurdum should tell you maybe your starting point is wrong. Christ's human nature is just that, it's human, which means it can't be replicated and still be the same, it can't be in many places at one time the human body of Christ is not ubiquitous. Now, there's another way that the Lutheran position blends or confuses the natures of Christ, and that is we need to keep this in mind about Christ's human nature as well. Christ's body is not invisible. Christ's body is not invisible. Jesus is a real human nature. What does it mean to have a real invisible human body? How can the physical substantial human body ever be invisible that's contrary to the nature of human bodies human bodies are not invisible they can't be and so if Christ's body is going to be essentially present somewhere if Christ's body is going to be substantially present somewhere we need to be able to see it we need to be able to taste it and touch it and feel it Christ's body cannot be invisible because it's truly human. It's a real human body and human bodies are not invisible. Beza says this, For to attribute to Christ an invisible body or one which can be in many places at the same time we say is repugnant, both to the nature of his true body and to the explicit word of God. There is nothing in the word of God about invisible human bodies. There's nothing in the word of God about an invisible human Christ. Human bodies are visible. Christ has a real human body. Therefore, Christ's real human body is visible. So if you're claiming to have an element that has the invisible body of Christ, it's not Christ. His body's not invisible. God is invisible, right? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The Old Testament says God is not a man, he does not have flesh and bones, he is a spirit. So God is invisible. Christ's divine nature is invisible, but his human nature is not invisible. So again, what has the Lutheran position done by saying here's an invisible body that you can't see, taste, touch, smell, or, or feel? They have taken something that is true of Christ's divine nature, and they've made it true of his human nature. That's not union. That's confusion. That's Eutychianism. That's Eutychianism. And so let me take a quick rabbit trail. That's why if you're new to these debates, you cannot be impressed by arguments that appeal to the power of God. Well, don't you think god is powerful enough to make a body invisible don't you think god is powerful enough to do this we're not talking about god's power we are talking about the essential nature of the humanity that christ took on this isn't about what god can and can't do this is about who are human beings and if god has done something which has changed the human being into a non-human being then we have a big biblical problem so this is not about the power of god that's not what we're talking about here we're talking about what is a human nature In the second you say that Christ's human nature goes beyond the bounds of human nature, then you are saying he doesn't really have a human nature. Can you hold the Creed of Chalcedon consistently? That's the question. And once you start divinizing the body of Christ, you can talk about the power of God all day long. You can't hold to the Creed. By the way, there is an interesting Bible passage where Jesus is very clear that his physical human body Has human properties because it's really human it has real human properties and so if you want to know whether jesus's real human body is his you need to be able to empirically test it and we see this in the case of the doubting thomas john chapter 20 verses 24 through 27 now thomas one of the 12 called the twin was not with them the disciples when jesus came so the other disciples told him we have seen the lord this is after the resurrection What has Jesus done here? Jesus is saying, if you want to know whether this is my body or not, come examine it. Come feel it, come taste it, come, come see that this truly is my body. So if I go into a Lutheran church or a Roman Catholic church or an Eastern Orthodox church and they hold out a piece of bread to me and they say that this is actually the body of Christ, I want to touch it, I want to feel it, and if I can't find it, if I can't see it, if I can't smell it, if I can't taste it, then it's not the body of Christ, it's bread. Jesus has given us the standard. If you want to know whether it's actually Jesus' body, touch it, see it, examine it. If if there's nothing present to examine, it's not his body because his body is not invisible. He has a physical body still, a real, not an invisible one, not a ubiquitous one that you can't detect. He has a real detectable, visible body. And that's supposed to be really good news for us. And that's supposed to be like, he took on flesh, a real human flesh, and it just stays that way forever. And it's this glorious mystery of the God-man. But now we're going around confusing the natures. Well, sometimes it's invisible, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's here, sometimes it's there. It's, it's ruining the story, guys. It really is. Some might argue, oh, but look at the verses you left off. Cause right after that, Jesus says, you had to see, Thomas says, my Lord and my God, And then jesus says you had to see me in order to believe blessed are those who believe and do not see and that has nothing to do with an invisible body or an invisible humanity present in the eucharist he was condemning him not because he didn't believe that jesus's body is invisible he was condemning him because before he saw jesus he refused to believe the testimony of the disciples which was simultaneously the testimony of the scriptures jesus was merely telling thomas he had good reasons to affirm the resurrection before he empirically validated Jesus's body. And so those verses apply to us today very well. We, we ought to believe in the resurrection. We have good reasons for believing in the resurrection and I don't have to see Jesus's body to do that. So those final verses I left off are not consistent with an invisible human nature or an invisible body. They're merely consistent with people knowing that there are other reasons to believe in the resurrection other than empirical validation. If his body is visible, and if his human nature is not omnipresent, then where is it? And the scriptures are clear, it's not in the Eucharist. It's not on the table on a Sunday morning. It's in heaven. Christ's body is in heaven. That's where his human nature is. That's where his body is. Beza says it this way. Wherever the body of Christ really is in its essence, it is visible in keeping with its own nature, since it is a true body. And that is truly and essentially now in heaven, not on earth. The scriptures are clear over and over again that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God. That Jesus is in the presence of the Father. That Jesus is with God in heaven and that he will come from heaven to return. 1 Corinthians 15, he has ascended, he has ascended into heaven so that he can reign from heaven, subduing all enemies as a footstool under his feet so that he can one day return. What, the, what these different doctors of the Eucharist do is they basically make Christ return thousands of times every single week. He has to change his locations. His body has to move from heaven into earth. Now, they don't say that. The different traditions have different ways of understanding it. But how can we understand it differently? If Christ has a real, true human body and it's in heaven, he has to change location. If you can't be ubiquitous. He's changing location. He is coming down to heaven. So Christ is returning thousands of times every week. It's guys this 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 is not biblical. This is not orthodox Christology. Christ is in heaven, not in the Eucharist. Now, Christ is present with us in accordance with his divine nature. So, because Christ is in heaven, it doesn't mean that I can't say Christ is with me, Christ is in me. We know that through the power of the Holy Spirit, he is present with us always. He told his disciples, I will be present with you. But notice... The glory of jesus's presence is found in the communication through the spirit not in the eucharist jesus told his disciples it is good that i go away remember jesus in the gospels telling disciples he's going to go away the book of john and they get really sad and he he utters this this statement it is so hard to ever contemplate it's hard for the words to even come off my lips it's good for jesus to go away that's what he says It's better for you that I go away. Why? So that the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the Helper will come. Jesus is present with His church through the Holy Spirit. He's not present with us by making an invisible body, an undetectable invisible body, show up once a week. He is present with us always in and through the power of the Spirit. That is how He is present with us. Christ's body is in heaven, it's not unified. To bread all over the world in different places at the same time, and that also before we conclude, that also brings up this last question that all Lutherans need to rest with: What is the nature of this union? You see, everything I've said up to this point is aimed at the Lutheran position, but it's consistent with the Roman Catholic, you know, it refutes the Roman Catholic position and the Eastern Orthodox position as well. But here's what's unique to the Lutheran position: The Lutherans talk about Christ being, you know, in, under, over, and some Lutherans like that phrase more than others, but Christ is somehow unified with the bread. What's the nature of that union? What, is that, what does that even mean to be unified to the bread? Is it, is it the same kind of union we have in like the hypostatic union? Where Christ's divine and human nature come together? Have you now added a third nature to Christ? Divine human bread? i'm assuming you don't mean that so what does it even mean for christ's body to be in union with the bread what does it mean to be in over and with the bread and i'm willing to bet now i'm kind of new to lutheran theology so i don't i don't want to get too far in front of my skis here i don't even know if that's expression head over my skis what's the expression but i've from the little studying i've done feel free to correct me I, i just don't see that the lutherans are very Unified in how to philosophically talk about that. Some like consubstantiation, some don't. Uh, some like with, under, and over the bread. Some don't. Some, but I mean, but what do those terms even mean? Do is there an attempt to philosophically explain that, or is it just kind of, hey, it's mystery. Believe it. You know, that's what the Bible says. It's mystery. We don't understand it. And so I would just present, pre, you know, submit to you before I close that. I think the best the Lutheran position has to offer you is just a lot of mystery with very little attempts to explain it, but the problem is the things that need to be explaining are very problematic, biblically and philosophically. It's basically, listen, this isn't cannibalism, but it's a mystery as to why. Uh, We're not replicating Christ, but it's a mystery as to why. Uh, His body is with and under the bread, but it's a mystery as to how... His body is in many places at one time and it's invisible, but it is the same Christ. It's just a mystery. I mean, once you start, once you realize that every single point in this doctrine is just, we don't really know. It's mystery, it's mystery, it's mystery. Now I think maybe it's time to start questioning whether this is really a biblically defensible doctrine. There's just a lot of unanswered questions here, and I think they're important. I think they're really important questions. Let me conclude with one last quote from Beza. Beza says, if Christ's entire sojourn on earth was nothing other than a kind of temporary arrangement or dispensation, what prevents us from going over to the side of Marcian, Valentinus, Eutyches, Eutyches, and the other monsters of that kind? For affirming that Christ's body is real And yet saying that it is invisible and without circumscription, such that it became ubiquitous and was visible only by a temporary arrangement, what else is this than affirming the antecedent, yet denying the consequent? Isn't it saying that a body is not a body? I really believe, and I say this with love and affection, I don't mean to be unintentionally insulting here, but it's only because this position is held, it it has such an ancient historical lineage, and because people who affirm Orthodox theology, both on Christ and elsewhere, believe it, that we don't see just how severe it is. I would submit to you, if you found an ancient document, like I'm talking a second, third century document, and we didn't know who it was written by, and it made claims about Christ that the real presence advocates make today, you would assume that it's some kind of gnostic docetist or heretical group you would never assume that these were the christians if you found some ancient second third century document that talked about how there were thousands of christs all over the world but they were all actually one christ that christ could multiply and replicate himself yet there was only one or that he was actually invisible like say you found a document that said christ his actual physical body rose from the dead invisibly. Maybe there's a gospel that has the story of Thomas, but Thomas says, I don't believe in Jesus, but he just hears a voice and Jesus says, my body is now invisible. You can't, t- you can't touch me. You can't see me, but you must believe it is a true physically invisible resurrection. You would say, this is nonsense, guys. Like there's no, this is Gnostic or this is whatever. It's one of the heresies, but Christ did not resurrect with an invisible body. If you read a document from the third century describing Christ as having a ubiquitous invisible body, present in many places, taking on different forms, the, the substance doesn't match the accidents, all of these language you would immediately assume, this is one of the heretical groups. And that's what Baze is saying. Like, if you're asking me to affirm all these things, why do we have a problem with the Marcionites and the Valentinians and the Eutychians? I mean, our view of Christ is just as disordered and anti-human nature and anti-biblical as theirs this kind of language sounds like an ancient heresy it really does you know and i think if you looked at it from a bird's eye view with a little bit more objectivity you would see like man we are claiming the the human christ can be invisible and without circumscription in many places at one time can be replicated in our mouths and yet that's all one christ and that's human nature we haven't divinized the body at all guys come on this doesn't work it doesn't work And then the only last thing I would say is I think that the real presence of Christ is actually not, it's not fitting for the sacraments. And here's what I mean by that. You can't have the body in just the body, like a dead body. That would be dividing Christ. So this is why both the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans, when you have the bread, you have the whole Christ. You have the whole Christ present there. So what does that mean in the bread? What is also there? The blood. And in the wine, you can't just have the blood of Christ. Now you're dividing Christ. You have to have the whole Christ. So what's present in the blood? The body of Christ. When a Lutheran or a Roman Catholic, according to their worldview, takes the bread, they've now also drank the blood. And when they take the cup and drink the cup, they've now also eaten the body because you can't divide Christ. You have to have the whole Christ in both. By the way, I'm pretty, I don't know if this is the logic that led to this, but you will find in Roman Catholic churches, both today and historically, that the lay people, at times lay people were kept from communion altogether, but the lay people are kept from one of the elements. They usually only take the bread. They don't drink from the cup or maybe it's vice versa. I can't remember. And I wonder if this is the logic behind it because you're still getting the whole Christ. But that's not fitting for the sacrament. Jesus does not say, this is the whole Christ, take and eat. This is the whole Christ, take and drink. We have one element for the body and one element for the blood. And when you have the reformed position, you can affirm that without dividing Christ. Because of the symbolism. This bread symbolizes his broken body and only that. This cup symbolizes his spilled blood and only that. And that's what he told us. This is my body, this is my blood. So we have sacraments that are fitting with what Jesus said. We don't say, this is my body and my blood, this is my body and my blood, (laughs) right? Jesus didn't say that. That's why, that's not what we're saying, but that is what the Lutherans have to say. So when you partake of the, the bread, you've now drank the blood. Why do you need the cup? Don't you see, I just feel like the philosophical problems here are far too numerous and by the way this isn't just like platonic philosophy this is when i say philosophical i mean we are trying to make sense of the scriptural data that's what i mean by philosophy in this context and it doesn't work it doesn't make sense i truly believe that the consistent outworking of the lutheran position is a eutychian view of christ and so that's my final argument and what i think is the strongest argument for why you should Hold a Reformed view of the Lord's Supper. Thank you for listening to the series. As I said, two more videos coming. I hope you'll watch them, but I'm kind of done arguing. But nonetheless, as always, maintain the gospel, maintain the fight. God bless.